Hello and welcome to another episode of Queer Not Here, where we're speaking to LGBTQ Malaysians who've migrated away from Malaysia. I'm Nez, and this episode I speak to Khalid, a gay man living in London who I mentioned in the What Is Queer Not Here introduction episode of this podcast. Khalid tells me about how some Malaysian students at university with him back in the 90s outed him, which led to him losing his scholarship and seeking asylum in the UK. I think it's worth mentioning here that this isn't exactly a one-off occurrence and that there have been other cases of Malaysians studying abroad that have also lost their government scholarships for being queer. Thank you to everyone for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. Yeah, so I mean, just before we start, do you want to be anonymous or are you okay using your name? I think let's go uh, with the unknown uh, option. Sorry? Uh, anonymous? Uh, go, go. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Do you have a, like a pseudonym you'd rather use? Uh, just use, use a Malay name, I think. Just pick one. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> What's your favorite Malay know. name? Gosh, I don't have one. <laughs> just put Khalid. Okay. Ken? Khalid? Uh, how about your location? Are you okay to say where you London's are? London's cool. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, I mean, firstly, I wanted to say that thank you because you were kind of the person who who sparked this whole idea in my head to do this. Oh my god! Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember, you know, like you know that time we met um, at the picnic in the park. And you started telling me your story and it was, I mean, your story is, you know, one of the heavier ones for sure. But you were also like so eager to share your story and it's, and it meant so much to you, you know, that I just, I felt like we need to document these stories. So okay. thank, thank you for giving me <laughs> the <welcome>. idea. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so okay, let's um let's go back to when you first moved away. When was that? Uh, that was back in 1989. So I won a scholarship. Uh, I was 17. I think it was British Council scholarship to to do my A levels in the UK. And obviously, you know, 17-year-old, never, never left the country before. And I was so excited. And uh, almost without thinking, I just said yes. And the whole family was happy. And I knew I was gay back in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And I just had a, I just broke up with my boyfriend uh, at the time. So I thought maybe it's a good remedy, you know, to move away as far as possible from Malaysia to mend the broken heart. <laughs> so I left and I think within months, I think maybe a couple of months, packed my bag and left the country. And I was sent to a college, like College of Further Education in, in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Fast forward two years later, I, so I got my uh, Scottish highest. And I think I got like six A's or something. Crazy. Wow. <laughs> uh, and naturally, I wanted to stay to go to a Scottish university, but I didn't have a scholarship. I 
discussed this with a Malaysian education, somebody in London who works at the embassy or something about the possibility of continuing uh, my studies in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. And he suggested that I apply. I wrote a letter to the Ministry of Education in Malaysia and asked, since I got good grades, whether I could have a scholarship mm. to uh, to go to university in either England or Scotland. And well, he kind of helped me. And I so you know, like very quickly, I got granted the scholarship to for four years. Mm-hmm. Then I think it was like I mean, it, it was fine at the time. You know, two years into my studies, something mm-hmm. happened at my university. Uh, uh, reported me. Well, Sorry, outed I'm, me. I missed that. Who, uh, who outed you? One of the fellow students, Malaysian a Malaysian also. student. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I think what what. What happened there, it was maybe stemmed from jealousy. I'm not sure because I was just happy studying and integrating into the, you know, I mean, like socializing with Scottish people, Scottish students. Whereas uh, there's a group of Malaysians, they tend to kind of stick together. And when they invited me to some religious do that they do, you know, like, uh, I don't know, uh, Quran reading, whatever, you know, I, in my head, you know, I'm there to study. I don't really want to get into all this religious stuff. And mm-hmm. obviously they didn't like that. And that's when they outed me. I, I, I think it was done by one person, but behind that person, there's probably a group of them. I might have been discussed, you know, behind my back at one of their meetings. How did they know you were gay? I was... Because <laughs> I was just out there. Yeah, it's like, I didn't... I, at the time, I didn't even realise that the law in Malaysia, you know, is illegal. Well, I don't mm. know. Because I didn't know anything. I was not... I didn't have any awareness of what's, what's the laws like in Malaysia. Uh, whether I was just being myself, that's the thing. Um, and I would hang out with some of the gay friends at uni, student unions, and I was involved in the uh, LGBT uh, groups at university. Uh, and I think they didn't like that. Mm. I don't know, maybe because I was just so, I don't know, I was not, I was not being Malaysian enough. I guess I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and oh, let me tell you a story. This is what really happened. <laughs> what really happened was uh, one night I was in the gay bar in in, in uh, near the university, mm-hmm. and I bumped into a Malaysian, a Mal- another Malaysian student, a postgraduate student in. At the, at the bar and obviously up to that point I thought I was the only uh, Malaysian student who who's gay <laughs> <laughs> in, in that in the, that was uh, you know when he well obviously he's in the gay bar so you assume that he's gay I sat down with him drank with him all night and the more drunk I got the more talkative I became 
And so I told him everything about my my story, my life, and how, you know, I had a boyfriend and all sorts of stuff, where I'm from, and didn't think going to be used against me. Uh, I was just happy sharing my story, and he was just happy asking questions. So I was like, whatever. And a week later, I bumped into him. Well, he told me he told me lies. He told me that he was there with his sister. So a week a week later, I bumped into him at the campus. I saw him with a with a woman and a pram and a baby in a pram. And so I, I walked towards them and say hello. And I said, oh, hi, he must be the sister. And it was his wife. <laughs> it was, you know, like, I, I was just happy, but he kind of blanked me out. So he kept on walking without acknowledging me. And that was insane because I was just like, what's wrong with this guy? Only a week ago or maybe a few days earlier, he was so friendly in the bar. Mm-hmm. And now he just blanked blank me out. So I didn't think much about it after that because I was just a busy person. A, a week later, I received a phone call from my, my mom and said that somebody wrote a letter to them outing me, saying that I was gay, I was a Christian, I converted to Christianity, I'm no longer Muslim. And the same, a, a copy of a letter was sent to my uh, to the Department of Education. Mm. And it was bad because I was like, I was not ready for it. You know, when uh, everything came out of the blue and you're just not prepared. I didn't know. I didn't have any defensive lines right. to, yeah. <laughs> to say to my mom. And again, not long Where did the Christian thing come from? I think because when I was in the bar, I was wearing a cross. Um, it's not even like a proper cross. It was the one, you know, Gun and Roses back in the... Uh, in the late 80s, I think it's their album, Welcome to the Jungle, where the cover features like four skulls and a cross on the skulls. Mm-hmm. I just picked it up from one of the, from the market in, uh, in Scotland. And so it was kind of like, I, was, I thought I was trendy. It's fashion. It's nothing to do with uh, me being Christian or anything like that. So basically, the, the, in the letter, the accusation is that I was gay. I was a Christian and I live with a man like husband and a wife and that was my boyfriend at the time uh, and that my, I had my ear pierced something like that and mm. basically uh, evidently well uh, apparently I didn't know that having having a having your ear pierced especially just one ear I think it was my right ear that mm. kind of signifies that you are you are the wife in the relationship, something like that. Oh. I just thought, wow, this guy knows so much. I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, how do they know? <laughs> they, they they knew so much about all this like gay culture. Mm. Whereas I was the one who lived and breathed in it at the time. Didn't know anything. I was just being me. I was just like enjoying myself. That was crazy and then from then on the whole thing gone bad when my mom kept calling me every single day sometimes three times a day like crying and asking me to confirm whether what's written in the letter were true what did you tell her on 
I was just like, God, well, obviously I lied. I, I didn't want my mom to go crazy like that. And it was bad because she was just like crying and said, are you really gay? Are you really gay? And I just like, no, mom. It's like, I think it's a lie, jealous, because, you know, I was a good student. Uh, and the, the government, well, the department that paid my scholarship contacted me not long after. Mm. And it was, again, uh, not via phone call. It's more, it wrote me a letter. They wrote me a letter saying that they received this letter and they would want to meet me in London to, for me to explain what's in the letter. And I was just like, okay, you know, just trying to be brave. So I booked a train ticket, went to the embassy in London. Uh, I got in the room uh, and then they asked me all sorts of stuff like whether I was... I, I, in a proof, they asked me to prove that I was still a Muslim, and they gave me a Quran and they asked me to read in front of them. It was so like, what the fuck? And wow. obviously, I could read because you know I was brought up a Muslim. So I was sitting in front of reciting the Quran. Can you imagine? And then they kept pushing me, pushing me, and and then they eventually said that uh, maybe we should move you to a different university. They wanted to move me down south to Portsmouth or Southampton, one of those. So it's mm-hmm. like for, away from one end of the UK to the other. Uh, basically trying to test me whether, you know, just to show whether, I mean, like, you know, if I, if I was in a relationship, whether I, was, I would be prepared to kind of throw away that relationship and move somewhere else. Kinda. Right. Mm. Uh, obviously... I lied and then again I just said oh, I had a hamster. I said I can't I can't just leave my hamster behind. They were stupid. I was I was so naive. I was just a child. <laughs> were you scared though? I was scared, but I was trying to kinda hide it. Mm. You know, trying to put a brave face. Uh, you know, when faced with all these like four guys uh, who looks very I mean wearing sonko and stuff. I was a little bit scared. I just said, shit, what are they going to do? They're going to arrest me. And mm. they, uh, well, the meeting ended and I obviously traumatized and I went to Hyde Park uh, and cried mm. on my own. I didn't know what to do. I was like, what? what's going on? It's, it's scary uh, being on your own and also just, mm. you know, experience what I just experienced. Yeah. And they did say that they would consider it. This, this is our last word. So I went back to Scotland and what they, and then I got a letter from them saying that, okay, we are, we've decided now that you're going back to Malaysia. Oh, wow. Just like that. And, uh, and failing uh, to comply, they would stop my scholarship. And obviously I said no. I wouldn't go back to Malaysia and they stopped my scholarship. So I was, you know, I, I, I kind of like appeal. I just say, you know, please reconsider, reconsider, whatever. So it went on, the reconsideration process went on for about six months or four months, something like that. And during which time my scholarship was not paid. So I didn't have any money. I, didn't, I couldn't afford to pay my rent. And I relied on my boyfriend to pay the rent and he was a student as well. So, you know, none of us were like rolling in it. 
Uh, and then my boyfriend dumped me. Oh no. <laughs> Because he was like a student like me, but he's he's English student. Uh, and he couldn't afford to keep me. And the Malaysian government sent me a plane ticket. And uh, I just tore it and threw it in the bin. Why were you so certain that you weren't going to come home? Because, you know, like my mom was like crazy, gone crazy. I didn't want to face that. Mm-hmm. And number two is that I suddenly realized that being gay is like really something serious in Malaysia. And I was just gone into a deep hole. I was depressed after that because I was just like, you know, like I was 21. <laughs> and I just... And knowing that my life was over, and it's not over, it's kind of like, you know, I couldn't go to university. So to me, in my, in my mind, it was like, that's, that's my future, it's gone. Yeah. I was, I was in a bad place after that because like, I remember while my mom was, kept calling me, I, think I remember my dad was on the phone and told me not to come home. Because he was so disgusted with me being gay and being a, being a Christian, well, but they basically disowned me uh, mm. when my dad said, you know, "Don't come back, whatever." And then, and then, I went into hiding. But at the same time, I work as a prostitute because yeah. I need I needed to make money to pay my rent because I need somewhere to live while I was there. So I. I moved house, boyfriend left me, moved to another place and joined an agency and, uh, and work. Mm. The only things I knew how. So then I, I do that job, but at the same time also work part-time in a restaurant as a waiter and uh, just to, to stay alive. Then one day I pick up a phone and call home. You know, like I... I didn't things happen so fast because I I still love my my family. So I still want to know how they were and when I called home my sister picked up the phone and told me that my mom was in the hospital. You know, uh she's been trying to reach me but couldn't because I obviously moved out, changed my numbers. Oh, I didn't even have a phone. Uh well I did. Uh I didn't tell them. So She fell ill, fell sick, and was hospitalized. Uh, that was around, I don't know, uh, June 1995. I just said, shit, you know, I, I need to go and see my mom. Because growing up, my mom was like my best friend. Obviously, that's the reason why she kept calling me, because she's so concerned. I was so close with her and I just thought, well, okay, uh, she's in hospital. I know my dad didn't want to see me. So I would just buy a plane ticket, fly to Singapore, cross the border into Malaysia and trying to go and see my mum. So I did. I bought a ticket, cheapest ticket I could find via Bangladesh. He was shit. <laughs> and uh, it was like 18 hours, a uh, crazy long uh, flight. But uh, when I arrived, um, when I got to the border, across the border, and my sister picked me up, and we drove to my hometown. And I said to my sister, I said, you know, usually visiting hours 
uh, would be till around about 8 p.m. Mm. And mm. we still got a good few hours. So I said, let's just drive straight to the, um, the hospital. And <sighs> crying. And I just thought, shit, my mom died. So I almost knew it, mm. you know, because the fact that she started crying. And obviously I cried. And I couldn't stop crying. I cried and cried and cried for... I didn't sleep that night. My sister drove to my family home and my dad opened the door and asked me to go, to go away. And he, I still remember his word when he said, I, I kill my mom. He, he used the word, you're a murderer or something like that. Mm. And yeah, yeah. And then, so I didn't, yeah, he asked me to leave and I left and I booked a hotel room, stayed in the hotel and spent the whole night crying. And the following day, I jumped on the bus and crossed the border again to Singapore, changed my ticket and flew back to Scotland, just like that. And then as soon as I arrived in Scotland, I got myself so busy trying to survive. So I didn't have time to mourn my mom's death. But it's hard. It's really hard. So you didn't get to be there for her funeral or anything like that? She was buried. Oh, already? Well, yeah. And also when I called, um, they just told me lie, lies that, you know, instead of my mom died, my mom was in hospital. But I was literally only in Asia for 48 hours. Probably maybe 72 hours. Yeah. And the whole thing. I mean, I just entered into this dark period after that. Because I didn't want to stay in Malaysia for very long in case I attract the attention of the authority. Because I was scared. I was just, you know, scared, sad, depressed, the whole negative emotions. So you immediately hopped on a plane back did you have mm -hmm. any idea what you were going to do when you got back to scotland no i didn't know the whole thing foggy i didn't know what i was gonna do all i knew was i i got a i got an apartment that i was renting i was just gonna go back there and then trying to return to just trying to forget about everything that ha that happened mm -hmm. and just live life as normal, I guess, and which I did. That's what I did. I just continued on doing what I was doing. And then I met someone during that, the course of the, during that time. And then he, I told him the story and uh, he suggested I, um, I saw, I see someone from the refugee council. So I set up a meeting and then told him the story and they advised me to apply for asylum and then they got in contact with Amnesty International and uh, in looking at the treatment of LGBT people in Malaysia and stuff like that, basically trying to build a case for me. So yeah, they, they kind of helped me uh, put together an application to the home office. As soon as I've done that, I, I got a new job and I worked for IBM. Uh, well, nothing, nothing spectacular. He's just working in the kitchen in IBM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the person who helped me, who pushed me to go and apply for asylum, 
became my boyfriend and he got me this job because he, he wanted to direct this at IBM. So I was with him for nine months and then uh, we split up. Then I moved to London. Woo-hoo. So how was, um, how did you feel kind of going through that whole asylum process? Oh, the, was- the asylum process is actually going to continue because back then, the UK, they don't recognize LGBT people as, you know, the definition, the UN definition of uh, refugees. Mm. Uh, there's this thing about you need to be part of a social group. But LGBT back in 1995, they were not they, they were not recognized as one of the social group. So it's very difficult because obviously my, uh, my case didn't fit into the refugee frame. You know, uh, yeah, it was debated in parliament. Eventually, they decided that, yeah, LGBT is, should be uh, recognized as one of the social groups. I don't know. Had they not done so, I don't know what I would be now known as. Oh, I don't know. Did it give you a kind of sense of relief or hope that there was a process that you could, that could, you know, make you stay there? Definitely, yeah, because it was like, it gave me a break from having to worry about, you know, what I already got, because I already got enough worries. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you have to worry about your status, whether or not you can stay or you can't stay and stuff like that. So in a way, it kind of gave me like a respite from my ever worrying mind. <laughs> and yeah, so in a way, I was glad. And also, in a way, um, the, the people who's trying to help me, like my lawyers and everything, and they are so nice. So I felt like, oh God, you know, the UK is, it's like the UK. People here are so lovely. They're very accepting. And I could be me. And and they still love me. And they're still trying to support you. So that's the reason why my, not allegiance, well, maybe to uh, Malaysia, UK thing, I kind of switch allegiance. Because here I'm safe. And here I'm being treated fairly and respectfully. Like with dignity, I guess I could say that. So mm. yeah, obviously that gives me hopes. You know that one day, you know, this whole period of darkness can will get lifted. So how was your, I mean, your relationship with your family and all that? Did that change over time? Well, obviously, with my dad, that is like a no, no turning back. It's still like that till now. And my siblings, my brother's okay, but he doesn't really get involved. But my elder sister is was, was very against what I was what, what I did. Or oh what I am rather. She's still not accepting me as me, even till today. And she kept I mean I remember early days she used to tell me, oh Maybe you should go back and be straight again. Maybe I should go back and be Muslim again. Oh, by the way, I did leave the religion because I just saw, you know, there's lots of stuff happen uh, and, and Islam being used as, you know, as their weapon to, to, to attack me. And I just don't want to, to be associated with 
that religion anymore. And uh, in fact, I don't really, I'm not really into any organized religion at all. So not a Christian either now. <laughs> so I'm just being me and be kind. I think, yeah, kindness is my religion. In a way, I think it's a blessing because had I, I was kind of forced to come out and had that not happened, God, you know, I probably wouldn't have the courage to actually come out to my family. So in a way, it's a good thing. So there is this blessing in disguise, I guess, what happened back then. I know it was hard, it was traumatic, but maybe it's a good thing that uh, this group of Malaysian students outed me. That like right now, I I'm actually, I actually live me. I mean, I, I live my life as me. Mm. I don't hide anymore and I, yeah, it's life, I mean, it's much easier being me now. Well, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned just now that before you left, you had a boyfriend back home. I, yeah, I did. How was that? I mean, where, what was, was there like a gay scene at, the, at that time? Like how out were you in Malaysia before you in- left? Inisa, I was 15. <laughs> what happened was, I was at school. It's an all-boys school in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And some boys kind of took a fancy to me. I think he liked my hair. This is strange. <laughs> he wrote me a little letter, like a little note saying, oh, you know, you look so lovely. I love your hair. But I already, I already knew I was gay. I like men. To receive something like that, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is so good that there are another gay person. I didn't even know the word gay, by the way. I just knew I liked men. And I was, yeah, I didn't know. The word gay hasn't, hadn't entered my vocabulary back then. And so I was like so flattered that, but it's really weird because he was kind of like, uh, you know, wrote me notes every so often saying he loved me. And obviously, that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be loved, even at that age, by the right gender. Well, the right uh, people with the same sexual orientation. So we were like close. I'm not even sure whether we were like boyfriends because we say we love each other, but that's as far as it went. It didn't go beyond you know, there's no, there's no sexual thing. Mm. Although I wanted to, but I didn't know how to do it. I was so young. I didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah, It's really funny though, comparing youth of back then and now. This, we're oh, so yeah. different because we're not. Yeah, I was so not exposed. But I, I love this guy. And But then a year into the relationship, well, two years actually. We were 15 until 17 ish 16 maybe he had he got himself a girlfriend what the fuck? <laughs> oh no <laughs> yeah so uh he one day he just told me that he met this girl uh, and maybe i should do the same but we can still be together it's so confusing i didn't know what the hell was going on so i was just, you know heartbroken mm. so that's in terms of being out whatever no no i was not I was just being me. Being, do you know what? Growing up, I thought being just. I was just being myself. I didn't even know. I didn't label myself. I didn't know whether I was gay or I was whatever. But I knew 
I knew what I, I like and I lived it without actually yeah it's just natural mm. I was not I was not I knew I was a bit effeminate maybe at school but then again I I hit that and I was being a bit rough I was being one of the boys I was being a gangster that's what they call it in high school but I was I joined I joined the band group just to I don't know just so I wouldn't get bullied I guess mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah I think it's a survival skill thing back then maybe that's how I survive now as an adult you adapt I guess so how long did your asylum process take actually Okay, I think because of the issues of LGBT not being recognized as a social group, mm. it took five years. Wow. So during, during, during which time I couldn't leave the country, uh, obviously I didn't get my refugee travel document. So I was like stuck in, in the UK, mainly in London for five year, that five years. And also... As a, an asylum seeker, you couldn't work. So, oh. but lucky, I met my boyfriend not long after I moved to London, and we're still together now. I mean, he's my husband now, so we've been together since '95, ish, towards the end of '95-'96. Yeah, so I mean, he kind of supported me. He's much older than me, and and richer than me yeah so yeah he was like older and richer and so he supported me <laughs> and five years a long time the, 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 like currently if you're lgbt uh within less than a year you should get your uh the verdict you should get your you know whether or not you get accepted very quickly nowadays it's it's not like five years wait anymore mm. Which is good. So, in a way, I was because, as you know, I now work for the government, the department that deal with all this stuff. So mm-hmm. it's like going full circle. Yeah. So at work, you know, I try to kind of like I give talk to my colleagues, especially during Pride Month, uh, about you know raising awareness of you know like what life like as a refugee and stuff like that. So you know how we can improve. Mm-hmm. Our the treatment and how we treat them at the airport, how we treat them when they get to the country. So, yeah, in a way, I, I made a difference somehow. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you were one of the first trailblazers that made this happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my lawyer told me that, so I can't claim anything. <laughs> but my lawyer said so. I kind of agreed. And also... Uh, yeah, the, I actually started working for them in 2003. I went for an interview and without any qualification, I just like convinced them that I, I was good. And they actually paid for, my, for me to go to university while I was working. Oh, nice. This is it though, because I mean, I, I remember at the interview, I told them had they not given me asylum, I wouldn't have. I probably won't, won't be alive today. It's almost like, how, I mean, I don't know. It's just like, I owe them, I owe this country so much mm. that and the fact that I'm talking to you, living, talking to you now, it's because they, they said yes. 
yeah so all i can do now and then i, I spend my life now just sort of trying to give something back to the uk this country gave me life yeah. so sorry I, i'm not being disrespectful to malaysia or anything like no, that no no but no i think it's a very valid feeling <laughs> Yeah, when your own country and also like my family, for example, my country, my family, my, your own country, your own family, your own people kind of rejected you. Mm. You know, like after that happened, all I could think about was I didn't even want to accept the fact that because I was gay, the country rejected me. In my head, I, 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 I created a new narrative saying that because I'm stupid, they rejected me. So for longest time, I just thought, oh, I'm stupid. I'm just stupid. That's why they don't want me. And I know I'm not stupid. And uh, now I'm contributing to the, I mean, the, the, this country. Mm. It's it just weird how I, I try, yeah. I'm not, I'm not joking. Like For the longest time, it was like, in my head, I'm stupid. That's why Malaysia don't want me. Because it's easier to accept that than to say that you're being gay. Because at least yeah. being stupid, you can... You can be better. You can learn. Whereas mm. being gay, you can't change. That's mm. you, you, you. Yeah. Have you Have you been back to Malaysia since your asylum was done? Uh, yeah, a few times. Um, in the beginning, I used to go back at least like every year. Mm. Ma- mainly because in the beginning, I actually tried to reconnect with my family, but obviously it didn't didn't work. And mm. since then, I, uh, I went back once a year because I miss the food and the weather. But um, in recent years, I would say in the last 10 years, I don't really feel the need to go home. Well, I still call it home, right? Because <laughs> I didn't feel the need to go back to Malaysia uh, annually anymore because I get everything in London, like the food. I know mm-hmm. we don't get the weather, but there are other countries to go to as well. I realize <laughs> as you get older, you just thought, oh, shit, I haven't been here. I haven't been there. So I thought, oh, Malaysia can wait because I've been there so many times. Yeah. And uh, obviously, you you have a lot of Malaysian friends in London. Is that is yep. that intentional? Do you need to have Malaysians around you? Not really. <laughs> uh, my, my friends, like... I mean, it is a diverse group of people. I mean, there are, it looks like I got so many Malaysian friends, but I don't really. When you put them all together in one picnic, it looks a lot, but <laughs> I would say in terms of good Malaysian friends, maybe I got one or two, but the rest are acquaintances or friend of a friends. But, you know, nice people is, but I don't really hang out with them so much. Hang on. Uh, I'm at the cash machine at the moment. <laughs> Do you know why? Because uh, somebody just delivering quesery uh, muka for me. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's what I said. That's the reason why I don't really need to go to Malaysia so much anymore because mm. uh, you can get everything here. Nice. Well, there's so many Malaysians there anyway, Ken. I know. That's the thing. Because like when back in the 80s when I arrived here, Uh, there's hardly, I mean, trying to get an ingredient to cook Malaysian food, it's so difficult. But nowadays, it's like, oh, you can get anything. You can get even craziest thing like down kasom, 
all sorts of stuff. So oh, really? in terms That's of nice. uh, yeah. yeah, bunga kantan, you can get it here. Mm. Like yesterday, I bought myself a durian. <laughs> Wow. The whole durian for forty-five pound. Oh my god! <laughs> one durian. It's not even a good one. It's like Thai durian. Okay, lah. Once in a while, can lah. <laughs> That's true. It's a treat. <laughs> um, do you do you ever worry or do you ever get like anxious if you meet a new Malaysian you don't know and that you're not sure how they're gonna react to your gayness? If I meet them in the UK, yeah, no, I don't really feel because this is for me. This is home. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a Malaysian anymore. And the stuff that happened to me was like, you know, three decades ago. Yeah. And so it doesn't really bother me anymore. I mean, like in the beginning, I used to be ashamed of what happened to me and my status. You know, being a refugee and having to go through that process and everything, I was embarrassed. But it stopped now. I mean, it stopped a long time ago because, for me, uh, I should be proud of what I went through because it takes a strong, brave person and also still wanting to help others. You know, I'm trying to, yeah, to make a difference in other people's lives. I'm sure I was not. I was not the only one going through that who experienced the same thing. There are probably hundreds. Yeah. And even hundreds who hasn't begun the process or the journey. Mm-hmm. And or maybe just too scared to 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 do it. Mm. But you know, hopefully what I went through, you know, they could see it that you know it can be done. And I don't know, I don't I wouldn't want to advocate people leaving their faith in but you know just believe what you want to believe you know but as long as you don't hurt others i guess it's good advice rather than yeah because i don't really want to get into religion stuff because it's just not my place to advise people but in terms of being yourself being lgbt well you know be yourself life too short to be something else. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like your Malaysian identity is still a big part of you there? I wouldn't say Malaysian. I would say Malay. I wouldn't even say Malay because I'm not even 100% Malay. Mm. So I would say now I use, like my mom's Chinese and my dad, he's Javanese from Java. So in Malaysia, Javanese is Malaysia, Malay, right? But yeah. I still, I prefer to use Javanese than Malay. And I'm kind of like Javanese, Chinese, Malay, British kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't, that doesn't matter what I am, but I'm just here. Although in terms of language, obviously I can speak Malay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of my identity. But uh, I don't know though. Uh, but then I speak a little bit of French like you well you speak fluent <laughs> french so does, does it make me french if i speak malay does it make me malaysian so because i can't i can't really say i'm english because i don't feel english i feel british mm. but yeah uh, i don't even want to go into like really you know some people just say oh i'm human that's boring that's <laughs> like, oh gosh i know i know it's true but it's just like oh that is 
<laughs> to cop out. <laughs> some fancy answer that some. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you keep up with news back home at all? No, I tell you a little story, right? Hmm. This is really you're gonna laugh. When I work for the National Probation Directorate here, that's my first job in when I entered the civil service. Mm. I saw, oh wow, there's an opportunity working uh, for the foreign office, um, and the job was working at the British Embassy in in Ampang, Kuala Lumpur, I think somewhere. Oh wow! <laughs> so I applied, and one of the one of the criteria was uh, that you you have to be able to speak both in well, obviously English and Bahasa Malaysia, and I said, yeah, of course I can speak Bahasa Malaysia. And I went for the interview and I failed the language aptitude test. Not, not <laughs> deliberately because, I, I, because I've never worked in Malaysia. Mm. You know, I, I left when I was 17. So uh, I could speak like, you know, Bahasa Pasa, like mm. everyday language. But this formal Malay, I, 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 no, no experience. So I went for the interview and I failed my Bahasa Malaysia. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> and then the guy who got the job was some white guy, uh, 40-something. And he, when he opened his mouth, I swore it's my, my dad talking. It's oh, like, wow. shit. And he's white. He's like, shit. I said, what? How did you do that? But he, he grew up in KL. So. Right, right. But you were open to coming back here and working here. This was, like I said, early days when I used to go there once a year because I, I love the food, I love the weather. Oh, my lifelong, lifelong dream is to go back to Malaysia as an expat and work with refugee children. Mm. Uh, because I know one of my friends opened a refugee school because I know uh, refugee children don't actually, they're not entitled to education and stuff in Malaysia, something like that. This is what yeah. she told me. And yeah. I just said, wow, you know, being a former refugee, and I just thought maybe I could give something back in that way. And I think if I could help one refugee kid and become somebody and achieve the, his or her dream, you know, I've, I've, I've achieved my goal. Mm. You know, I just want to help at least one person to, you know, like go to university and get a good job and become somebody. And I can't claim that I'm somebody now, uh, but it's, I'm proud of what I've achieved. Yeah. Despite the hardship and stuff. So is, so is there a plan to come home then? Yeah, basically I told my boss that, hey, I'm going to retire at 55. I'm 50 in, in next year. So I said, uh, my, I've done, I put in, you know, since 2003, quite a good few years working in the, uh, for the UK government. I think I kind of paid my debt, what, what I owe them for mm -hmm. giving my life back. So I thought maybe it's time for me to kind of move on to the third sector, working for charity and help others as well. Especially my, my passion is really just to help uh, refugee children. I mean, like at the moment, I'm helping trans people while I'm working, which is good because um, I really feel passionate about that. Uh, you know, not being more than their allies, you know, just trying to help give them opportunity, make them <laughs> promote their achievement. You know, I, I write for a trans magazine. 
Oh yeah. And nice. oh, you don't know? No. Yeah. I I write for Trans Living magazine. Uh, it's a UK based, but available worldwide. Mm. And so when I get like uh, you know trans refugee who came here, and I go and talk to them and see what their background and trying to find them, help them find jobs, and you know signpost them, trying to make their life as easy as possible, because I know how to do that. Number one, and also while I was in the process of applying and everything for my uh, refugee in refugee status, you know I got help, but. You know, so it's just nice to pay it forward. That's, you don't, you, it doesn't cost you anything to help people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And also at work, I, you know, I talk about trans awareness and stuff. And not being trans, you know, as an ally, from the ally perspective. Mm-hmm. So do you have any concerns about coming back home here and being able to you know live with your husband and all that no no uh well my husband has concerned but i don't because i just thought well you know i'm not number one i'm not malaysian mm. if stuff happen i'll go and run to the british embassy asking for help <laughs> and the worst they can do for me is send me back here but i mean obviously i wouldn't go there and cause problem you know i would mm. go there to help people and it's not like I'm going to go there and... Well, obviously, I would support LGBT Malaysian mm. because of the situation there um, in, in terms of, you know, achieving equality and all sorts of stuff. Um, and maybe, but I won't, I won't cause problems or troubles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't break the rules. Well, uh, maybe I do. Just being me, I'll break the rule. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you don't not- have to do anything to break the rules. You're already breaking the rules. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not overtly. Yeah. Okay. So, last couple of questions. Um, sure, go ahead. What do you wish for the Malaysian LGBT community? Okay, let me just be straight. I think the problem with Malaysia is religion. Hmm. That's my number one thing. I think... I mean, from my experience, anyway, religion is the one that kind of ruined my LGBT life. Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, I was away from Malaysia then, and it still affected me badly. I feel the pain of the LGBT people in Malaysia because, you know, they had to do all sorts of stuff to survive. And I don't want them to survive. I want them to be them. Uh, so in terms of hope, it's, I wish, I don't know, in Malaysia it's very difficult because it's generation after generation after generation, they all have the same mentality. And I want people to change their mindset. I mean, just to see people as people, not see their sexual, sexual, sexual orientation or even their gender. Mm. But the, the religion is so strong. Mm. And they influence every aspect of your life from any, you know, anything. Because it's so institutionalized, Ken. So, like, yeah. it, it's in every aspect of everything. That's why, how do you untangle that? Mm. That is, if, if, if somebody in Malaysia or anywhere can actually come up with that answer, Malaysia would be, um, uh, you know, a better place for LGBT people to live. 
and with you know without without fear or or, or anything because at the moment the slightest thing you do they scapegoat LGBT people. Yeah. And you know anything that's gone wrong with the weather it's LGBT's fault. Yeah. And it's, it's easy all this scapegoat thing thing got to stop because uh, it doesn't make sense. Number one. Number two is like if you got a brain and you think about it, it's like it's so not true. But yet, and yet, people, the masses, the, the uh, people in Malaysia, but not all of them, believe it. And anything that the the leader or religious leader said, they buy it. You know, instead of questioning them, um, having a debate and all sorts of stuff. And that's what I want to stop in Malaysia. And then. And then, you know, you can just leave your house without fear, without fear of being murdered, being killed, being beaten up, or even at work being discriminated against. It's, it's hard because it's been going on for so long and yeah. the, the untangling will take probably as long in terms of time or even longer. It's such embedded into people's psyche and it's not an easy way to... To, to, to get rid of. Yeah, I think that's the reason why uh, the easy way out for, for LGBT Malaysia, Malaysian is to leave the country if they want to, to live their life. And currently, I would advocate that because for me, you know, even if you live up to 70, that is still a short time. Life too short to be putting up with shit when you can actually leave the country and reach your full potential and, you know, be, and, you know, like just live your life, mm-hmm. you know, uh, without having to hide anything, without having, you know, fear, without feeling anxious. Yeah, because I don't call that living when, you know, like in order to live as a gay person in Malaysia, you have to get married. Recently, one of my friends died. And okay, he's Irish. Mm. Yeah, back in Ireland, they still, you know, because of Catholic religion, they hide mm. their sexuality. They got married. And I feel sorry for this friend of mine because like he he died at 50 uh, and never actually lived as a gay person. Like for real. Right. And that's sad. I don't wanna that's the reason why I'm I'm staying here because of that. I wanna be me. And everyone should be themselves. Okay. Um, last one. Are there any sounds that remind you of home? Do you know when I said uh, I left the religion? Mm. The best sound I could think of at the moment is, you know, Hari Raya, right? Or even the night before Raya. Mm. That thing that came out from the mosque. I don't know what you call it. It's like they call it. You mean the azan or like... Uh... No, it's not azan. The other one. Like uh, the night before Raya and also mm. the morning of Hari Raya, the mosque would do this song. It's like... Allahu Akbar, Allahu Allahu Akbar, Allahu You know, like all the singing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It reminds me of happy times in Malaysia. Because, like I said, you know, I grew up as a Muslim, although I, right now I don't believe in the religion. But during Hari Raya, I sometimes go on YouTube and switch on that sound. It, it, it brings me joy. It, it takes me back to my childhood. It takes me back to when, when I was happy. 
you know, like no care in the world and higher rise, people give you 10 cent, 20 cent. <laughs> that is the sound that makes me, reminds me of Malaysia and makes me happy. Uh, okay, well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a great conversation. <laughs> no, no worries. I- I'll speak to you soon, yeah? Yeah, we'll do. All right, Thanks you so take much. Care. See right. ya. No worries. Right, bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Queer Not Here. If you'd like to give me feedback or have any inquiries about what was discussed in this episode, do write to me at queernothere at gmail.com or hit me up on IG at queer.nothere. If you're enjoying what you've been listening to, please do share with friends and family and thank you all for your support.